Yes, hello, folks. Welcome to Beyond the Pitch. I'm your host, as always, Phil Brown, and I am delighted to have back on the show the fantastic Grant Wall. For a lot of my European listeners, uh, I strongly encourage you to check out grantwall.com. I'll have Grant explain a little bit more about what he does. Obviously, one of the most prominent football journalists in the world, uh, U.S., Football journalist uh, has been comprehensively covering football for a long time. Certainly someone I have tremendous respect and admiration for. He also has his own podcast and you need to check it out because it is a litany of stars on there. Uh, that he's got some great relationships and some great content on there. Grant, uh, first of all, uh, how you doing, mate? I'm good. Good to see you and thanks so much for that really kind introduction. <laughs> Thank you. That's my pleasure. Uh, tell me, uh, grantwall.com, that's where people can find you, right? That's where I am. It's where I've been for all my writing the last six months. Uh, it's it's really going well. Um, it's uh, it's a mix of magazine style stories, so feature stories where I have a travel budget. I go all around the world um, and do what I think are interesting stories. I, I hope readers agree. And then I also cover every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier on site. And uh, I've been to all eleven of them. Going to go the last three in March. We have uh, a weekly Friday newsletter that includes a column and a, a reader mailbag and lots of other stuff, big and small. And, and you can sign up for free and get free posts, but there's also uh, paid posts that you can subscribe for. It's like six bucks a month, 50 bucks a year uh, for the higher end stuff. But uh, it's nice being your own boss and I can yeah. go and do um, really ambitious work in, in a very nimble way. I just got back from a trip to, uh, I always do three stops on every big European trip I do. So I went to Venice, Italy. I went to Doha, Qatar. I went to Barcelona. And all three of those stories are going to be coming out over the next few weeks. Strongly encourage you support that, especially the subscription model, folks, because first of all, it means you have your own editorial policy. You're not owned by sponsors. You don't have to say this or say that. And if we want good independent journalism, it's not beholden to any particular agenda. It's very, very important. Subscribers support that work so that um, we can keep that agenda free and as open, as honest as possible. So strongly encourage you to support that. Um, and uh, it, it, show, it shows in the journalism. You know, I listen to different podcasts that are subscription based. And I always find that whenever it's supported by subscribers, the content is much more authentic because I don't feel it's geared towards supporting particular brands. And I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid to say this in case they fire me or whatever. And journalism isn't cheap, folks, as we've seen in Ukraine right now, uh, how important good journalism is in, in informing the world. And it's very, very important. And PR and journalism are not the same thing. So, um, uh, nor, nor are commentators. And sometimes people will call me a journalist and I always correct them because I have far too much respect for actual journalists. Uh, and uh, at least you have some obligation to be truthful. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so much to talk about. As we've said in the introduction here, Grant is um, a forensic analyst of US soccer, uh, which has changed a lot over the years for the better, which is very, very encouraging. Uh, first thing I want to talk about Grant, is um, Chelsea situation because Chelsea Football Club, as we know, is up for sale, and it's rumored, uh, heavily suggested, that an American Swiss consortium is the front runner uh, to buy that football club. What do we know about the people that could potentially buy Chelsea? Well, the the name that stands out the most to me is Todd Bowley, who is the American 
who was a part owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. Uh, he's a guy who's had interest in Chelsea for several years, has tried to buy the club from Abramovich before a couple of years ago, was not successful in doing that. And uh, he's a real guy. So if you're a Chelsea fan, I think you should not be scared if Todd Bowley ends up owning your team. It would be a different type of situation than under Abramovich, though, because Abramovich has been very willing for many years now to lose a lot of money yeah. every year and to be this benevolent owner who just throws money at the team. And I think Bowley would be much more like the Liverpool owners, FSG, uh, the Americans who bought that team several years ago. And, and Liverpool obviously continues to do very well, but their strategy is not as spend thrift as say Chelsea or Man City or PSG. I think Liverpool, you would agree with me, is much more targeted yes. in how they spend their money, how they do the analysis uh, when it comes to making a purchase. And it doesn't mean they don't spend a lot of money because Virgil van Dyke, sure. Allison, uh, but they, they seem to get really good deals even when they spend a lot of money, like with Luis Diaz. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that's what would be much more likely to be the situation with Bowley. I don't know much about the Swiss guy who would come mm -hmm. in with Bowley, but um, I think it's a situation where it would be run more like we see uh, well-run American-owned teams in Europe. You mentioned Thur that he tried to buy Chelsea before. There's been other Premier League clubs up for sale. So the question is, why Chelsea? It is a good question. I mean, like, and... I'd love to interview Todd Bowley. Hopefully we can get him on, on my podcast at some point. But, um, you know, he's a guy who wants to be associated with gold standard sports operations. So Los Angeles Dodgers sure. would certainly qualify in Major League Baseball for that. Uh, and I think at this point, and this is partly an achievement of Roman Abramovich, because I think people forget that when Abramovich bought Chelsea in 2003, there wasn't a lot of stability there um, in terms mm. of the way Ken Bates ran the team, in terms yep. of how much Chelsea won. They didn't win a heck of a lot. They were in contention. They were kind of known in the late 90s as the first Premier League team to become, quote, cosmopolitan because they bought guys from Italy, mainly, uh, and a few other places like SIE from France. Mm -hmm. But... Um, you know, that changed when Abramovich took over. And you could say that Abramovich heralded in the era of just incredible wealth uh, coming into the Premier League and certain European teams, which has taken an even further step with the state-sponsored ownership yeah. of Manchester City and PSG and now Newcastle United. When you look at... You're quite right. When Chelsea, when Abramovich bought the football club, you know, Ken Bates sold it for a pound, right? It's never been a self-sustaining football club. Peter Kenyon said Chelsea would be self-sustaining within three, four years. It never accomplished that. Abramovich is going to write off a billion and a half that he's owed. Um, the question becomes then, if, like you say, that Chelsea is going to be run with much more acumen with an attempt to make sure it's a self-sustaining football club, how does it accomplish that and still compete? Because... They changed the game in 2003-04 when they started to spend, right? Which really put an end to the Arsenal era of Arsene Wenger, right? Because they never matched that spend and then changed everything. Uh, and, of course, Manchester City came along. The question is, 
Um, can Chelsea still compete? I don't want to say being parsimonious, but being much more forensic and how they spend. Yeah, and that's where I bring up Liverpool again. I, I just mm -hmm. feel like that's the model you've got to follow if you want to be a club that can actually compete to win the Champions League or the Premier League. Um, and it's not the same thing uh, as Manchester City. And so uh, I, I don't see a situation in which you can continue to have the volatility in coaches that Chelsea has had over the years where they've managed to continue winning things, even though they seem to change the coach every couple of years. Um, that's not going to be a recipe for success. It wouldn't be at Liverpool. And I think like there's a reason why it's so important if you're a Liverpool to, you know, make a manager choice like Klopp, you know, like Chelsea and Chelsea may have found its Klopp and Tuchel. We'll see. Um, you know, he's a, he's a real guy too. Um, and yet I look at, and just the way that sometimes I feel like Chelsea has been successful despite itself in recent years, because they've been able to throw tremendous amounts of money at player signings and some have worked and some haven't. There's been a lot of volatility, but they've still found success. So I, I don't think that recipe is going to be able to continue. I think one of the things <clears throat> if I was uh, taught, I would be concerned about when, uh, Liverpool owners, you know, the, the uh, FSG took over, they took over from Hicks and Gillette, where the football club was in crisis, on the verge of bankruptcy. Liverpool hadn't won a league title in a long time. And Liverpool fans were not conditioned to ban Galacticos, if you like. But there's that old saying, if I hadn't seen such riches, I could live with being poor. Chelsea fans are conditioned to being spoiled. Big signings, big money, you know, throw money here. It doesn't matter whether it works out or not. We'll just keep spending, keep spending. Then you got to be the guy that comes in and says, no, 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 we're going to rein those purse strings back in. We're going to be smart about how we buy. And of course, um, they're typically American owners are described pejoratively in the UK because with Stan Kroenke, the Glazers, what have you. Is there a concern that he would be looked at as the bad guy coming in and saying, no, we need to be sans, but we need to be smart. We need to cut our cloth accordingly. I think, the big concern if I'm a Chelsea fan would be if say the American Todd Bowley comes in as, as the principal owner, if he were to saddle the club with debt, like the Glazers yeah. did with Manchester United when they came in. Now I'm not someone who thinks that some debt is terrible because look, I've got a mortgage on mm -hmm. my New York city apartment, which I would not have been able to buy otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> so like, the, the world financial system works with debt and not all debt is bad. But if you saddle your club with too much debt, that is a problem. And I do think the Glazers have done that with Manchester United. So um, I, I think it's gonna be really important though for, for Chelsea to, to be like, it's interesting under the Glazers, Manchester United have been financially pretty successful, right? Mm -hmm. It's on the field where they've really yeah. struggled. Liverpool has been, good financially and good on the field. And that's why I think they're the club to emulate here. But um, I don't have any original reporting right now to know um, whether Bowley's going to saddle Chelsea with debt if he takes over that club. I would love to know that. I'm sure the fans would as well. Mm. It's, it's a little interesting when you compare it to um, the media business. And I don't want to go too far afield here, but like, it seems like, all the big 
publications, you know, magazines that used to be so big in the United States that have been struggling financially, and I, I include Sports Illustrated, my old employer in this realm, there was always this hope among the staff that some billionaire would buy the team uh, or buy the, the publication, um, as was the case with Time. Time Magazine had that, and the Washington Post had that uh, with Jeff Bezos. That didn't happen at Sports Illustrated. And, and so um, I, that's not sustainable just to hope for a, a billionaire to come in who's willing to lose money. So you, if, you're, if you're Chelsea, that's gone. That's not yeah. going to happen now. And so you need to understand that it's going to be different, but it doesn't necessarily have to be bad. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't, I don't, regardless of whether it's an American, I don't see anyone coming in there and repeating what Roman Abramovich did, you know, that wants to lose a billion and a half to fund a football club. You know, who wants to do that? I don't think there's many people out there. It doesn't matter where you come from. Um, I want to ask you about <clears throat> uh, these Russian sanctions, of course, because they were uh, wide ranging. Um, in some sense, I feel sorry for ordinary Russian people, because in many sense, they're a victim too, right? It's not a democratically elected government, and we're trying to thread the needle here of not being too political, but also um, discussing these appropriately. Uh, Russian teams kicked out, um, of course, they've been excluded uh, for the Champions League, and uh, now Sweden says they don't want to play them. Uh, Ukraine's asked for their game against Scotland to postpone the World Cup, it's not far away. Um, do you think that um, FIFA were right? And two, uh, are they setting a precedent here for future conflicts where someone else is going to come up and say, well, you went after Russia, what about us? I'm sure that'll happen now. That doesn't mean that this is some ironclad precedent that every future potential case is going to follow this. It's always a case-by-case -case basis, but... To me, this was a pretty clear case. I, I wrote more than a week ago uh, a column, should FIFA ban Russia from the World Cup? Of course, but don't count on it. Because mm -hmm. I didn't see it actually happening. And now it has, which uh, is slightly surprising, but at least the process to get to that point, FIFA had to be pushed really hard by the countries you mentioned, especially Poland, Czech Republic, Sweden, who said, we will not play Russia this month in World mm -hmm. Cup qualifying. So essentially, you're either going to kick us out or you're going to have to kick Russia out. Or there's going to, you know, there's no, there's no other option, FIFA. And FIFA made an announcement saying, well, we're going to allow the Russian players to play without a flag and without an anthem, mm -hmm. basically doing what the International Olympic 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 Committee did at the recent Olympics, and that mm -hmm. didn't work out very well. And it was only a day later, interestingly, after the IOC came out and said it was okay to ban Russia now, that FIFA did that. And, and I'm totally okay with that. Uh, Russia is a pariah nation due to what is happening with sure. their invasion of Ukraine. And I do think there is some precedent and it's never exactly the same, but um, when apartheid era South Africa was viewed as a pariah nation and banned from the Olympics and the mm -hmm. World Cup for decades, that was a good thing that that happened. And there may have been athletes in South Africa during apartheid who didn't agree with that, 
But that doesn't mean the policy was a bad policy. It was a good policy. And historians have told me that it did have an influence, as did economic divestment from other countries in apartheid era South Africa. So lots of factors went into South Africa eventually finally changing. But the, the sports banishment of South Africa was, was a small part of it. So I think stuff like this matters. And I think we've seen Vladimir Putin over the years use sports, including the World Cup being in Russia in 2018, to try to burnish his reputation, both globally and, and maybe even more so with his own people. So he, Putin himself has used sports a lot in, uh, with the Olympics in 2014 in Sochi. Uh, or 2016, um, and so this, I think it, it really could hurt Vladimir Putin, and, and now we'll just have to wait and see. It sounds like Russia is appealing this yes. sanction to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, where Russia has had a lot of victories. That's why those Russian skaters were skating in the Olympics, mm -hmm. and you know that's despite state-sponsored doping, Mm -hmm. You know, watch the movie Icarus if, if yeah, y'all haven't incredible. seen that. It's, it's, it tells you all you need to know. Um, so we'll see where this ends up going because, you know, Cass could very well overturn this ban and, and we, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. One of the things that I think gets lost in this, um, well, certainly the invasion was a tipping point and uh, sanctions were, were, were needed. I think there's also an argument for better governance here because a lot of the things that Abramovich and Usmanov and other uh, uh, oligarchs uh, have been accused of are things that go back to as far as perestroika. And then there's the question of fit and proper test about ownership, vetting, and what have you. I mean, we've seen people like Thaksin Shinawatra be allowed to own Manchester City, which is just incredible to me. Because um, it seems like the, the governance of football doesn't take ownership of some of this because why were these people allowed to own these teams in the first place? I I hope, and and that's a hope. It's not a certainty that we are going to see a reckoning of some sort because of the extremity of what is happening now with Russia's invasion. Because we're seeing this, you know, this term sports washing mm -hmm. is a good term to describe what a lot of um, uh, bad actors globally who may have a, extreme amounts of money have been doing to try and help their own reputation through investing in sports. And that can be anyone from Russia to Qatar to uh, UAE to Saudi Arabia to whomever. But I think there's, there's going to have to be more vetting. You know, and it can't just be about who can give us the most money, because, yeah, because I mean we had a World Cup in Russia. You know, yeah, and, uh, Gianni Infantino, of course, as we know, is very close relationship with Putin, the Gazprom situation, and um, you know, Russia annexed Crimea in two thousand fourteen. So a lot of these things, you know, obviously um, they were known. Yeah, and and there's always a tipping point. There's always a before and after. I I, I get that, uh, but uh, I just feel. With the history of FIFA, um, and of course, you know they've they've always had issues with sources of money and corruption, what have you. That um, they also need to take some ownership of this because this never should have been allowed to happen. The other question then becomes, and I may be wrong on this, but 
The Russians own sporting institutions in America. They're the only New York Nets. Um, so yeah, Pro- Prokhorov was uh, the owner of the Nets, oligarch. And so this isn't just something that happens outside of big time U.S. sports, you know, and they're I, I, so I don't I do think it's important for people in the U.S. to acknowledge that we're not some 100 percent clean situation over sure. here. We're not. No, of course not. Um, Let's talk about uh, U.S. soccer and its continued exciting growth, because uh, obviously this got overshadowed by events. But uh, HBO, of course, out here um, have signed a deal for streaming U.S. soccer, which I think once again is a reflection of the continued growth of, of, of sport in this country. Um, tell me a little bit about that and uh, how exciting is that for U.S. soccer? I think it's another good step in in the growth of the sport here, and especially on the television broadcasting side, streaming, whatever. Like, there are so many big time uh, broadcasting organizations now that broadcast the sport of soccer mm-hmm. in this country. And yeah. you remember what it was like yeah. 20 years ago, even Lionel Bienvenu. Years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. right. I mean, legend. Uh, like, <laughs> like, this was one of the worst countries in the world in which to watch professional soccer not that long ago. And now it's one of the best. It's probably and, the best. Yeah. And, and like the only potential competition actually is in the Middle East. If you go like Al Jazeera has a tremendous amount of like mm-hmm. global soccer, but there's not many places better than the U.S. And so this is another step, right? Because Turner had Champions League and Turner is part of HBO, Warner, all that group. Turner had Champions League until a couple of years ago, but they only had it for two years. It didn't yeah. go well. But they, they got out of soccer. I thought they would be out of it for a while. And now they're jumping back in. They may get the MLS rights as well. And so they're going to make an investment in growing the sport in this country. And it's also interesting that the sale of U.S. soccer rights, you got to keep in mind that it's an eight-year deal. But it's not really, it's not including any World Cup qualifiers over the next four years because the US is co-hosting the 26th World Cup. There won't be any World Cup qualifiers. Uh, and yet they were still able to get US soccer, I think it was what, 27, $28 million a year for just the English language rights. This doesn't mm-hmm. include the Spanish language rights, which we're gonna hear about pretty soon here. I expect those to be extended with Univision. Um, and so, you know, that's money, that level of money that wasn't there before. And so that's, that's just another good step for the sport. No, it's extremely encouraging. Um, we've seen how far soccer's come, especially HBO dropped boxing a few years ago. It used to be the home of boxing. Uh, they considered it too niche. And that shows you what they view soccer as is no longer a niche sport. It's now become a mainstream. Soccer, of course, has laid down roots, its infrastructures there, are stadiums there, they're not piggybacking off anything else. And I've often wondered, because you know, we all remember the 94 World Cup. This has always been the place where world football has wanted to 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 uh to establish roots and they know the the how the potential of the US market. And I've thought about various different things about why this has grown. And I wonder if the answer is in front of my face the whole time because my 15-year-old son, born and raised in this country, he's a big football fan, and he has a knowledge that extends beyond what he watches. 
were video games the Trojan horse for soccer to grow in this country and establish a following amongst America's youth? They're a huge part of it. I mean, whenever people have asked me over the decades, when is soccer going to make it in the United States? For a few years now, I've, my first response has been, it already made it. Yeah, sure like, it's, it's, that's not something that's going to be down the road. It's already happened. But this idea that there was one silver bullet that, that was going to make soccer matter in the United States, I never agreed with. And this goes back to even when David Beckham came yeah. to MLS or when Freddie Adu first started, you know, playing of like, it was never going to be just one factor that made soccer hit some sort of tipping point in the U S it was going to be a lot of different factors, including David Beckham, by the way, sure. that, that made a big difference. I do think video games and the success of the EA soccer game has been a really big influence on young people in this country growing up with the sport of soccer. And, but I, I, I think the television stuff we were just talking about has made a big difference because when I was growing up in the US and play, playing soccer at the youth level, I really couldn't watch it on television. Yeah. And I think if when once kids can see the best levels of the sport and that you can make a professional career out of playing soccer, fewer kids are going to give up playing soccer at age 13. They're going to keep going themselves. They're going to also be interested in watching the sport. So there's a lot of different factors, um, but they've, they've come together, I think, to, to take this sport to a place where maybe in the 70s and 80s, there was always the hope it would get to, but it never did. One thing about the U.S., and I may be wrong in saying this, is <clears throat> the success or failure was often defined by the performance of the national team, where in a lot of other countries, that's not the case. Now we see uh, Americans who have earned their respects around the world, who are no longer looked at as, you know, as, as Luddites or football, you know, individuals who just don't grasp the sport. We see Jesse Marsh getting the Leeds job. Right, which I think is fantastic. Uh, we, you know, we, we see young Ricardo Pepe going to Augsburg for close to 20 million. These things were unthinkable, Grant, when I was you know, coming to this country. If you'd have told me this, that would happen. I mean, we remember what happened to Bob Bradley and the disgraceful treatment of Bob Bradley, which uh, was, in, in, in my opinion, the borderline bigotry. So it wasn't bigotry. Um, you must be one extremely proud at the uh, America being accepted around the world now as a legitimate footballing country into perhaps no longer being defined through the performance of its national team because it didn't qualify for the last quarter cup, uh, yet they're not starting to go to the sport here, perhaps no longer being defined by the performance of its national team? I think that's a good point, you know, and, and the fact that, at least on the men's side, we're seeing uh, young American players on this U.S. men's national team playing at top clubs in Europe now in a way mm -hmm. that never was the case before. And fans who live and breathe the game around the world every single week are seeing these U.S. players. And I think that makes a huge difference yeah. beyond just the once every four years oh, World sure. Cup situation. And then, you know, I think American coaches like Jesse Marsh 
have it, you know, they're sort of earlier on in that situation right now because mm-hmm. we haven't seen many American coaches. I think Marsh is the, the second U.S. born Premier League coach after Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley. His mentor, by the way, which is yeah. interesting. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's a rare thing. And this well, is a big opportunity for, for Marsh to sort of put the Leipzig thing behind him. And, you know, this is the biggest league in the world. And now it's a big challenge, right? Mm-hmm. 12 games to keep the team up. But if he can do that, um, I think he'll win the support of the Leeds fans. And he's 100%. already started to do that when you see the, the initial responses to what Marsh has said publicly, which he's very good at. But he also knows that how he's viewed by the Leeds fans will, will be from how his team performs on the field. Yeah, and certainly, you know, uh, my sense is that, um, you know, it's n- no longer is it, um, you know, oh, something you have to overcome if you're an American in European soccer. Now, you know, the, we Europeans see, and rightfully, because, you know, I remember speaking to, uh, I think it was Jovan Karofsky, <clears throat> and he sent me, you know, in the era of Beckham, it was enough to have a couple of good players in your team and you could win the MLS, but not anymore. Now, you know, you have to have tactical acumen. You, you know, you have to have so much more to win. And we are seeing players in the MLS easily transition to Europe in big leagues and, 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 you know, comfortably just to the level. Uh, So I think, uh, you know, and of course we see Chris Armas at Manchester United, which I think is fantastic uh, because when you get, the job like the assistant, right? It's not, in some sense, you have to be more qualified than the manager because it's not a job where you get a ton of credit, right? If you win, you get, you, you, it really is to me uh, a, a, a job you get based purely on merit, right? It's not because of your profile. It's not because of your popularity. It's because, you know, they're, they're, they're behind the scenes. And there's really only one way to prove yourself as an assistant coach. And that is being an exceptional assistant coach. Um, so tell me a little bit about Chris Armas, Grant, um, uh, and uh, what Manchester United fans should expect from him. I mean, it's an interesting one, right? Because I think people, fans, and even some journalists may not have a full understanding of how different the assistant coaching job is from mm-hmm. a head coaching job, because there are big differences. If you're an assistant coach, you don't have to deal with the massive media obligations that the head coach has to do. You, your job is to, to work with players every day to do a very specific task, to make them better, to get across the points that you're a vessel in some ways of mm-hmm. the head coach, that, you know, the, of, of getting yeah. Rangnick's system across. And so I say all that because I think it is important to denote the differences. I think there's a very good chance that Chris Armas is an amazing assistant coach, yeah. and that's why mm-hmm. he got the job. And that's why Rangnick hired him, mm-hmm. also due to his knowledge mm-hmm. of the system that Rangnick has. Chris Armas has not been a very good head coach, okay? So, like, when it comes to results with the Red Bulls, but, mm-hmm. and especially with Toronto FC – but that's a very different thing than being an assistant coach. And so um, I've seen reports as I'm sure you have that like certain players don't think Armis is accomplished enough and whatever. Um, the thing, the only thing that makes it tough to evaluate someone in Armis's position from our perspective is we can't see the training sessions. Sure. And 
we can't actually probably even interview Armas because it sounds like it's one of those situations, as is the case in many operations, where the assistant coaches don't speak to the media. But I hope to speak to Chris Armas at some point and get his sense because I've known Chris for a really long time, since back to when he was a player for the U.S. men's national team in the early 2000s and one of the best defensive midfielders in the history of MLS. So I know a lot about him. I know a little less about him as, a, as an assistant coach, but um, I think the jury's still out a little bit on, on the impact that Rangnick and his people have had on United. And, um, and you know, there's another dozen games left in the season where I think we'll get a better sense of that. Yeah, uh, last question. I genuinely think he's done a good job so far in a very difficult environment. Last question, Greg, because you got to run. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, last week also lost, and of course, much bigger headlines with what was going on in Ukraine was that the women uh, finally came to an agreement uh, with USSF. Tell me, what is the difference between what they had and what they, what they uh, got? Well, what they've gotten is a $24 million settlement with U.S. soccer, $22 million of which is for back pay over the years to make up the difference in pay with the U.S. men's national team. So that's a significant amount of money that they got in this settlement. It's still contingent upon reaching a collective bargaining agreement, which everyone expects will happen. Um, And then also they got from US soccer a promise that moving forward, there will be equal pay, equal prize money, including World Cup prize money um, for the US men's team and the US women's team. And that's gonna require the US men's team, that's gonna require the US men's team to agree as well in their collective bargaining agreement to split World Cup prize money with the women's team. So there's still some work to do here but this is a major step forward just to get this legal case behind U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer has spent way too much money in recent years, tens of millions of dollars on legal fees, and, and they're starting to put that behind them. Good. Let's hope that uh, their brothers support their sisters and we get that over the line. Uh, Grant, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I would take another hour of your time if you'd let me, but I am so grateful to you. I hope I can get you back. Folks, check out grantwall.com. There'll be a link on my website and uh, I will put a link on Twitter. Absolute gentlemen. Thank you very much, my friend. Take it easy, Grant. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.